All right, hello and welcome everyone. Uh, my name is Alex Winder. I'm the, oh, okay, we're being live streamed. Uh, hello and welcome everyone. My name is Alex Winder. I'm the co-editor of the Jerusalem Quarterly and also a visiting assistant professor at Brown University's Center for Middle East Studies. I wanna welcome you all and thank you for joining via Zoom or Facebook for today's event, Who Owns Palestine, which is part of the JQ Afternoon Series. Um, before we start, I wanna give some thanks uh, to my co-editor, Lisa Taraki, who regrets that she's unable to attend today, but gives her congratulations to all of our speakers and, and sends greetings. Um, thanks also to Salim Tamari and Bashar Dumani, the former co-editors of JQ, um, as well as the rest of JQ's editorial committee, um, the Institute for Palestine Studies uh, for putting this event on. And I want to especially thank uh, Carol Khoury and Laura Elbast for their work in making this event possible. Um, I also want to thank the Center for Middle East Studies at Brown University and especially the New Directions in Palestinian Studies Initiative, or NDPS. Um, I'll say a few words about the format of the event, and then we'll get right into it. Um, so I'll ask each of our four authors, uh, Kirsty Berg, Clayton Goodgame, Fadia Panosetti, and Elizabeth Bentley, um, to speak about uh, their work for about 10 minutes each. I'll introduce each one of them before they speak, and after uh, all of them have spoken, we'll have some time for uh, questions and answers uh, from the audience. Um, you can input your questions at any time via the Q&A function at the bottom of your Zoom stream. Uh, uh, or in the Facebook comments. Um, and uh, again, you know, at any time you can put those in and we'll uh, have some time after all of our speakers present um, to, to respond to those questions. Um, as some of you may know, the four articles that we'll be discussing today emerged out of the 2020 New Directions in Palestinian Studies workshop held at Brown University. And so I'd like to now introduce Paul Colbury, who is instrumental in organizing this workshop as a postdoctoral research associate in Palestinian studies at Brown. Paul Colbury is now the postdoctoral instructor in human rights at the University of Chicago. Uh, his research explores property ownership and agrarian change in Palestine. And his work uh, has been published in the Journal of Palestine Studies, American Ethnologist, Dialectical Anthropology, uh, and other journals. Um, Paul, perhaps you can frame our presentations today by saying a bit about the 2020 workshop more broadly, the themes that it raised, the questions that it sought to engage, and why this concept of ownership uh, is so important for Palestine. Sure, thank you so much, Alex. Um, so yeah, in 2020, I was at Brown and uh, there were a couple of things we wanted to do with the 2020 workshop. First, we wanted to think a bit about how property ownership structures Palestinian social relations and aspirations. And this meant not only in historic Palestine, but also how ownership or the hope of ownership is shaping Palestinian life in the diaspora and the connections people could have to Palestine. Second, we wanted to think more about the various forms of ownership that predated colonization, and then how they're remade through both colonial expansion and anti-colonial struggle. And third, we were interested in discussing how Palestinians make ownership claims, their sources of legitimacy, and the new modes of governance and jurisdiction that are transforming ownership rights today. And um, what became clear, and this is, I think, both in the papers for today and in the workshop as a whole, is that property relations between Palestinians, especially when land and housing are concerned, are always entangled with colonial power, um, either immediately or potentially. But these relations also exceed national politics and territorial claims. 
And so ownership and the study of ownership becomes a way of thinking about the relationship between these different sets of interests, rights, and political struggles, and accounting for their configurations geographically and historically. And um, the papers for today get at these questions in all sorts of different ways. So Clayton Goodgame and his study of the Orthodox Patriarchate shows us how Waqf property allows for this conflation of family and monastery and what that means for Palestinian Christians in the old city of Jerusalem. Christy Berg tells us the story of Palestinian refugees and how they laid claim to Shofat camp by taking control of space through building, renting, and selling land outside of state law and humanitarian regulations. Fadi Panasetti revisits the question of agrarian change in the West Bank, looking at how the privatization of rural land outside of Bethlehem is inseparable from colonial expansion and Palestinian urbanization. And um, Elizabeth Bentley shows us how this discourse of extinction, which emerges around the Palestinian crocodile, also comes out of this broader modernist project of landscape transformation, in particular marsh drainage and its accompanying ideologies of waste and productivity. And so, I mean, these papers are very different. And in the workshop, there is a lot of different work and it covered different places and periods of, of time in Palestine. But what it all had in common is a mode of inquiry that draws from really from multiple disciplines and a perspective that foregrounds Palestinians and focuses on the complexities of Palestinian thinking and practice. And what the workshop brought out and what the papers today really get into is the ways that ownership is not only a legal relation, although the law is very important, but it's also one that extends you know, into questions of attachment, belonging, presence, and control. And from these papers, we learn how ownership is part of the ways that you know, Palestinians care for family, create community, and build political projects. And also how ownership generates contradictions and limits for these endeavors. And so, I mean, these papers all help us think about ownership differently, perhaps more expansively in Palestine. And they give us methods and questions about dispossession, endurance, and agency that matter far beyond Palestine as well. Um, it's really a fantastic collection of papers. I'm really excited they're published and I'm looking forward to hearing more about them all today. So I'll turn it over to whoever is presenting first. Thanks Paul. I feel like that gives us a good kind of grounding and, and um, kind of overview of uh, within which we can situate these papers. Um, we'll now turn uh, to Kirsty Berg. Uh, Kirsty holds a PhD from the University of Bergen and is a postdoctoral fellow at Christian Mikkelsen Institute in Norway. Her article, published in JQ88, is titled Moaskar and Shafat, Retracing the Histories of Two Palestinian Refugee Camps in Jerusalem. Take it away, Kirsty. Thank you very much, and uh, thank you very much for the to the organizers and also for, to Brown for, for uh, hosting the, the workshop back in 2020. Um, so one starting point for my article um, and the article uh, that I uh, am presenting today is that after more than 70 years of, after 48, there's no comprehensive history of Palestinian refugee camps and the history of uh, the individual refugee camp uh, is mostly not written. So anthropologists and uh, geographers and architects have done so much important ethnographic in-depth work, but historians have largely stayed out um, of this field. And I think uh, we can discuss reasons for this. And, and one reason might be that the problem of accessing archives and uh, many of those still remain under Israeli control, 
and others are controlled by hosting countries. And UNRWA has existed along with the refugee questions since 1949. Uh, and when I was a PhD student many years ago, I accessed uh, UNRWA's archive and uh, copied more than 6,000 documents from its central registry in Amman. And I also uh, was lucky to have access to the Waqf uh, archive in Abu Dis and was allowed to, to read more than 200 letters uh, about in, in the so-called refugee file. Um, and also uh, did our interviews in, in Shofat and with uh, refugees who had formerly lived in Moscow. So it's on these sources that I wrote the article, uh, which is basically a micro history about Moscow and Shofat. So, um, Today, today Shafat is home to maybe 20,000 Palestinian refugees or, and others, and it's within the Jerusalem municipality, uh, borders drawn by Israel after 67. Um, and it's excluded by the wall and also in a limbo situation outside the limited authority of the PA. And UNRWA provides limited assistance, education and rudimentary health uh, services. So two themes are recurring in, uh, in the article as I build up to discuss uh, the evolution of claims to ownership in the camp. Uh, and one um, is the building of Shofat camp as a new camp uh, in the 1960s. Uh, and the other one is the problem of moving refugees out of Moaskar camp where they had resided since their flight during the war in 1948. So they, they resided in empty buildings in, uh, in the area that they refer to as High al-Sharaf and often the wider area is the Jewish quarter. Um, and here's an old photo where you're still um, be from before 67. Um, and in the article, I give a detailed account of how refugees resisted this move and eventu eventually UNRWA made them move by threats of ration cuts and barbed wire. Uh, and I also look into the role of the Jordanian government. It highlights the fears in UNRWA that the refugees would take advantage of the scheme and end up with two buildings, one in the new camp and one back in Moaska. And, and unfortunately, the file does not disclose the big question of why the Jordanian government wanted to move the refugees out, but it, it gives certain assumptions from UNRWA employees at the time. But it's very clear that UNRWA is the part pushing this scheme through. Here's a few photos from Moaskar. Um, the first in the early, uh, in, in 49, there were uh, maybe 8,000 Palestinians went to pick up their rations inside the Haram al-Sharif. And I, I detail some of this in, in the article, but here is the picture of ration distribution moved out of the Haram. So Shofat was built at the time when 
UNRWA policy was to not build any more camps. And it was built as an exception. Uh, and it was built as a part of a long process where UNRWA was reconsidering its policy on camps. So the, the project was described as, as slum clearance and, and removing squatters from uh, an unofficial camp. And, and the aim was to improve li living conditions. And, and very briefly to sum this up, the, the initial aims was to improve the living conditions, but as it turned, uh, UNRWA ended up prioritizing projects in Amman and therefore uh, ended up building the Shofat camps at the lowest standards uh, available. And it was predicted at the time by UNRWA officials that the camp would deteriorate into urban slum, uh, into urban slum in Jerusalem. Uh, and this time UNRWA also moves away from camp and orients itself towards education and uh, here you see uh, pictures from the new school in Shofat. And in the back, you can see the, the huts, as they were called at the time, the shelters. Uh, so here are photos from the 70s. Um, sorry. So uh, the way I have approached this, uh, the history, this micro history is part of the history of Jerusalem and it's um, and also part of uh, Palestinian refugee history and camp history, the history of humanitarianism and also history of erasure, but also the history or the evolution of ownership. Uh, and I argue in the article that in, in Shofat, you see the evolution of what we can maybe call a new form uh, of, of a property regime uh, for the propertyless, uh, refugees as propertyless. And, um, and as a background, uh, you will see in the article that the com there's very complex um, situation of land and property regimes and ownership. They take many forms, both in Shofat and in Moaskar, and the different claims to this property and, and land and different interpretations. Uh, and also complicating this, you have UNRWA uh, or managing the land uh, uh, for 99 years and then refugees living on the land. So what the evolution that I see uh, is that refugees by living and building, uh, they, they not legally, but, but in practice, they blur complex categories of formal ownerships and unrest management of land in practice by building the camp and by living there. And this is also a way to make claims to the camp, to the space, to have rights, and also, I argue, a right uh, to Palestine, a right to belong. This is uh, very briefly, um, a very brief, I would say, summary of my uh, article. And I, I'm, I'm glad to leave the word to, to the next one in line. Thank you so much, Kirsty. 
Um, uh, the next speaker, um, if you could stop sharing your screen. Yeah. That'd be good. Um, our next speaker will be uh, Clayton Goodgame. Uh, Clayton is a postdoctoral fellow in anthropology at the London School of Economics, where he examines property relations, kinship, and religious politics in the Orthodox Patriarchate of Jerusalem. His article, which appears in JQ 89, is titled Custodians of Descent, the House, the Church, and the Family Walk in the Orthodox Patriarchate of Jerusalem. Take it away, Clayton. Uh, you can hear me, right? Yeah, okay. Um, hi, everyone. Um, thank you, Laura and Alex and everyone at Brown and the IPS for inviting me. I'm very happy to be here today. Um, Unfortunately, I don't have any photos to share, so uh, not for this piece anyway, so um, I'll just try to be brief. Um, my article is on the Orthodox Patriarchate of Jerusalem, as Alex pointed out. Um, the background of the article is the news that emerged in 2018 that the Patriarchate was once again selling and leasing valuable tracts of land to the Israeli state, Israeli developers, and even Israeli settlers. As I imagine some of you know already, um, land sales of this sort have been happening for a long time in the Orthodox Church, but 2018 and 2019 saw the culmination of a very long legal battle resulting in um, the settler organization Atiret Koanim gaining control of properties in the famous Omar ibn al-Khattab Square in the old city of Jerusalem. Quite a lot has been written already by journalists about the details of these and many other land deals, and a number of historians have now also investigated the longer historical trajectory of patriarchate land ownership. But one area I felt was not represented quite enough, often just because it, it doesn't appear in the archive, uh, was the experience of people who live in church property and what that experience might reveal about the deeper structure of the church and its history of ownership and possession of property in Jerusalem. So my article is about the family waqf, um, which is an Islamic legal institution through which a founder may guarantee that their property is not sold or sundered until um, after they die and may designate which descendants have the right to use property and which do not. It begins, the article begins from the premise established by Shara Dumani and others that the waqf is not just a financial institution which grants property rights to some people and not to others, but when considered over time, also a means through which the character of the family as a social institution is defined and changed. My article simply asks what happens when this legal tool associated with the family comes to define a very different kind of institution, a Christian church. I came to the question kind of backwards. I'm an anthropologist and did field work in contemporary Jerusalem, not primarily in the archive. But as I watched and participated in the events surrounding the church's land sales, which I described at the start of the piece, I felt there was a major difference between how Palestinians in the old city who live in church property described the church and how people outside the old city did from Beit Hanina, Kofar Akab, Beit Safafa, et cetera. And in particular, I thought that the language of kinship was particularly strong in the former, that is among old city Christians. Um, 
of a kind of closeness to specific places and people in the church, um, relatedness among members of the same church who are not from the same family, um, including monastics actually, and especially the language of church descent. The, the idea of the church as a means of protecting the continuity of Palestinians and Palestinian families over time. So this made me curious about the history of the church's property, which led me eventually to the family waqf. Um, so that the article basically tells two stories then. The first one describes how the church came to be legally defined as a family in the 16th century. Um, as a way of holding on to its monastic properties. Um, and it traces several moments in the later history in the Ottoman, late Ottoman period and the British mandate when this family and descent element of the discourse reemerges. And to some extent, it's still present today. Monks can still own property, which the church inherits when they die. This isn't like a normal thing for, for monasteries to do. It's quite um, specific. Um, and the hierarchy continues to describe contemporary Greek monks and their Greekness as the essential link realizing the quote unquote Greek character of Byzantium. In other words, they speak in terms of a lineage of a church that descends through time and that their presence in Jerusalem continues that lineage. The second part of the article shows how some Palestinian Orthodox who live in church property describe their relationship to the church, not in terms of ownership per se, but continuous presence. Here, the logic of the waqf also reappears, but in the sense that one's claim to property is connected with the family's ability to remain in the old city and pass down residency and use rights from one generation to the next. I can't really explain all the details now, but part of this has to do with a lot of the residents of the old city or former refugees or are refugees. And so they didn't own property in the old city to begin with. They were um, allowed to stay in former monastic cells or empty houses in 1948, and they continued living there and were eventually granted hereditary residency um, in those houses. Um, so anyway, the, um, the ethnography then explores some of the political implications of this view, the sort of kinship and continuity view of, of, um, of property uh, and how the presence of old city families is being threatened both by the hierarchy when it denies descendants the right to inherit residency rights and by the constant presence of Israeli settlers. Um, the politics which emerge from this view are complex and often change. But I described one example of a Palestinian movement within the old city that uses the language of continuity with the church to articulate a very conservative politics in support of the Greek hierarchy and the patriarch. Other examples, though, can be found within the Orthodox national movement itself, but a kind of submerged idiom within that movement. Um, at a protest against the patriarch during the same period, 2018, I saw a banner that read, the alqaf of our ancestors are for the grandchildren of our grandchildren. I think this expresses the theme of the article quite well because it describes property in terms of Palestinian continuity and the church as the proper but utterly failing means of establishing that continuity. So one potential contribution of the article is to show how this way of understanding church property exists alongside the dominant national discourse and the movement to democratize the hierarchy. 
That movement argues that because the vast majority of members of the church are Palestinian, the church hierarchy should also be Palestinian. Uh, it argues that many properties of the church were only temporarily entrusted to it by the Palestinians and thus should be returned. This article tries to add another dimension to these claims. What I think the dynamics of the old city show is the importance of understanding the specific mechanisms through which property is controlled and how those mechanisms affect social relations within the church. The family waqf is arguably one of these mechanisms, and I think it's important to recognize its ongoing role within the church and the city as a whole, and the sort of unique way that it combines religious and kinship and economic relations all at once. Thank you. Thanks so much, Clayton. Um, and just a reminder also that uh, at any point, people can pose questions uh, using the Q&A function or, or on uh, Facebook comments. Um, our next presenter will be Fadia Panosetti. Uh, Fadia is a PhD candidate in agricultural and rural development at the Center for International Cooperation and Development Studies, CECID, at the Université Libre de Bruxelles. Her research, uh, which is funded by the Belgian National Fund for Scientific Research, adopts an interdisciplinary approach to examine the dynamics of agrarian change uh, in Palestine, Israel. Her article, which appears in JQ 89, is titled Evolving Regimes of Land Use and Property in the West Bank, Dispossession, Resistance, and Neoliberalism. The floor is yours, Fadi. Thank you very much, Alex. And I would like to start by thanking the Jerusalem Quarterly team, especially Laura and Alex for organizing this fantastic event. It's such a great pleasure to be here. So I'm now going to speak briefly about the article Evolving Regimes of Land Use and Property in the West Bank Between Dispossession, Resistance to It and Neoliberalism that I co-authored with Laurence Rudar. This article engages with the question, who owns Palestine? by looking at how Palestinian modes of land use and property in the rural highlands of the West Bank emerge both in response to the ongoing struggle for land control and in relation to changing political economic circumstances. Building on critical approaches to property, settler colonialism and agrarian political economy, this article considers the nexus land use, land property as an arena of struggle in which different actors and institutions seek to advance land claims and to shape prevailing property relations. In the article, I take into consideration two uh, case studies, uh, Alwalaje and Wadi Fukin. Alwalaje and Wadi Fukin are two Palestinian villages located south of Jerusalem along the Green Line, where I carried out extensive uh, ethnographic fieldwork in 2018 and 2019. In those two villages, I explore the strategies of land use and property that villagers have adopted to oppose, resist, and complicate processes of land dispossession across two time periods. The first period that I analyze spans from 1980 to the Oslo Accord, and the second period is the post-Oslo period. So now, now, why the year uh, 1980 to start with? As probably many of you already know, that year represents a turning point in Israel's land policies toward pal towards Palestinians in the West Bank. I will not go into, the, into details, but as I highlighted at the end of the first section of the article in which I provide an historical overview of regimes of land use and property in Palestine, 
after the Israeli Supreme Court judgment with regard to the Elon uh, More case in 1979, the Israeli state adopts um, the so-called state land doctrine to legally seize Palestinian land. Very briefly, the state land doctrine is based on the principle that any untitled land in the West Bank that remains uncultivated, uncultivated sorry, for a certain period of time can be considered a state property, unless the person who claims ownership of the land can prove otherwise. This, this shift in Israeli land policy opened a new terrain of struggle between the Israeli state and Palestinians across the West Bank, and particularly in rural areas and rural villages, such as Al-Walaj and Wadi Fukin, where, as I detailed in the second section of the article, ongoing land dispossession and adverse political economic conditions had diminished farmers' ability to cultivate the land. And as a consequence of it, vast tracts of land were exposed to the risk of confiscation as state property. So in the third part of the article, I explore how at the turn of the 1980s, Villagers of Alwalaj and Wadi Fukin adopt a collective strategy of ex extensive land planting in response to the Israeli state land doctrine. Such strategy consisted in reclaiming uncultivated lands and planting them with rain feed crops, and especially with olive trees. Such permanent crops were planted mostly on undivided family lands. And so to ensure a continuous use of the land, an informal and orally regulated system of land borrowing, as I define it in the article, emerged within and between families in each, in each village. According to the land borrowing system, people who had already shifted to work, to wage work in Israel, or were refugees abroad and, so could, and therefore could not return to Palestine, lent their land and water shares to relatives in the villages who would take care of them. Most of those agreements, uh, of those borrowing agreements, did not entail any monetary exchange between the landowner and the borrower. And in this way, it enabled villagers to protect the land vis-a-vis -vis the Israeli state, while at the same time to maintain use, right, uh, use rights uh, within the community. However, the Oslo Accords and neoliberal restructuring in the West Bank have prompted a shift in the kind of practices and strategies through which villagers have sought to establish property and maintain presence on the land. In the last section of the article, I discuss the adoption of market-based practices of land use as a means to protect the land. In particular, I focus on two types of market-based practices of land use. First, the conversion of agricultural lands to construction and residential use in Al-Walaje. And second, the adoption of capital intensive forms of vegetable planting in Wadi Fukin. So while I think we can discuss this more in detail uh, later on in the Q&A session, what I want to highlight here is that those market-based practi market practices of land use have led to a rise in land prices in the village, in both villages, but especially in Alwalaje. And rising land prices have fostered a process of individualization and commodification of, of property rights uh, in both villages. 
So to conclude, the article points out to the risks associated with adopting individual forms of cultivation and questions the assumption that individual ownership is an effective protection against dispossession, especially in settler colonial contexts such as the Palestinian one. Both in Al-Walajan in Wadi Fukin, as well as in other rural areas of the West Bank, the individualization of property rights and the adoption of market-based market based practices of land use have already begun to engender socioeconomic differentiation and this might lead to the expulsion of people from their village, not necessarily as a direct consequence of the land being seized or their home being demolished by the Israeli state, but also but because um, of economic hardships. More broadly, what I want to put forward in the article is the importance of considering how assessing changes in land use and property configurations requires careful attention both to the vertical and horizontal, or horizontal dimension of the struggle. By vertical dimension, I mean the relationship between the colonizer and the colonized. And by the horizontal dimension, I mean the set of relationships that Palestinians established between themselves with respect to the land. In fact, uh, Palestinian regimes of land use and property emerge not only in response to settler colonial modes of dispossession, but also in relation to changing relations of class, as well as gender and generation among Palestinians. So I think I'll leave it here and I will hand it over to Elizabeth. Thank you very much everyone for, for listening. Thank you so much, Fadia. Uh, and our final presentation today will be from uh, Elizabeth Bentley. Uh, Elizabeth is a Mellon American Council of Learned Societies postdoctoral fellow at New York University. Her article in JQ88 is titled Between Extinction and Dispossession, a Rhetorical Historiography of the Last Palestinian Crocodile, 1870 to 1935. The floor is yours, Elizabeth. Okay, thank you so much, Alex. Um, I'd like to echo Thanks to IPS, especially Laura, for wrangling us all uh, together, the JQ editors, and of course, NDPS for bringing us together uh, pre-COVID. Okay, so I'm gonna start, start share, let's see, desktop. Okay, and slideshow from beginning. Okay, so although this, the real like meat of my presentation focuses on a historical phenomenon, uh, I'm gonna start with a contemporary anecdote. Um, so at the Jerusalem Biblical Zoo, um, which is where I first got interested in this topic actually, um, there is a plaque in front of the Nile crocodile exhibit. And it narrates the history of crocodile extinction in Palestine and it, it says that the last crocodile was hunted in 1905 by residents of the Palestinian village, Jisr al Zara, and then we must do everything so that the small amount of wildlife in our region will not meet the same fate. There's a lot going on here. We could talk about greenwashing, et cetera. Um, but I wanna focus on today is that the biblical zoo's account erases the web of historical relations that led to this extinction, beginning with one crucial fact, the market for late Ottoman Palestine's small and dwindling crocodile population was overwhelmingly driven by colonialists rather than by the indigenous population. 
by invoking and isolating the Palestinian identity of the hunters who allegedly killed the last crocodile. The Israeli zoo poster implies the Palestinians were responsible for the crocodile's regional extinction. This historical narrative hinges on the last crocodile's symbolic singularity. The demise of the last living member of the species marks extinction through a singular body and a singular moment. Yet the scores of scientific literature and taxidermy um, that they left behind um, demonstrate that many, um, many colonials wanted to acquire a last Palestinian crocodile and several last Palestinian crocodiles, that is crocodiles hunted when the local population was at the brink of extinction, remain to this day in British, German and Israeli collections. Um, so in my article, I conduct a um, rhetorical historiography of the last Palestinian crocodile um, by tracing this figure's circulation across colonial zoological literatures that were published between 1870 and 1935. And I contextualize my critical engagement with the colonial scientific archive with Palestinian authored scholarship from this historic period. Uh, as well as ethnographic interviews with local historians from the present-day city of Jisr al-Zara, whose ancestors, members of the Hawarna community, lived in the Zor al-Zara Kabar marshlands where these crocodiles lived. And I'd be happy to say more about how I coded this uh, data in the Q&A. So I argue in my article that the Palestinian crocodile's extinction story uh, is intertwined with violent histories of colonial resource extraction racialized labor, labor exploitation and indigenous human dispossession. Colonial zoologists approach to extinction uh, perpetuated an unjust social order. So before delving in further, what is a Palestinian crocodile? Well, scientists generally presume that it's the Nile crocodile, which is the most common kind of crocodile. Uh, and they had a really small um, kind of habitat in uh, late Ottoman Palestine in the Zoro Zoro Kabar marshlands. And I have a map on the screen that kind of shows you um, where that is. Um, and so species extinction is really tricky to quantify. Like this is pretty much a fact, but nonetheless, I argue that um, colonial zoologists ongoing speculation about Palestinian crocodile extinction necessitated a degree of willful or internalized unknowing. So here I'm referring to colonial scientist detachment from how local populations lived alongside Palestinian ecology, as well as colonialist mistrust and condescension towards Palestinians, even as they depended heavily upon Palestinian ecological expertise. Colonial scientific literature on Palestinian crocodiles frequently perpetuated the racist and historically inaccurate outlook of science for the West and myth for the rest. Yet colonialist writing on the last crocodile reflected their own symbolic attachments and investment in mythical thinking. And in my article, I draw upon uh, Palestinian folklorist Stefan Hannes Stefan's writing on the crocodile to sort of juxtapose a different approach to Palestinian crocodiles. It's not um, so markedly um, colonialist. So why, oh yeah, I'll stick here for a minute. So why were they so obsessed with Palestinian crocodiles, um, these colonialists? Well, there's no singular answer here. Um, and what follows, so in my article, I, I organize my analysis across four categories that cut across the figure's key scientific and cultural, material, and imaginative properties. So I demonstrate how the last crocodile's properties, its attributes or qualities, along with its status as property, a thing belonging to someone, figured as modes of value extraction uh, in the service of capitalist accumulation and colonial conquest. I'm kind of going to 
gloss over these in the interest of time. Um, the first being lastness itself. Um, so colonial zoologist fixation on the crocodile was in part driven by enduring European fascination with lastness as a spatial temporal construct, um, which powerfully exemplifies the convergence of evolutionary science and imperial sensibilities that shaped colonial research on Palestinian life and land. Uh, and here I draw on work by, uh, by Bashar Dumani, who notes that uh, these colonialist skewed orientalist studies aimed at, quote, documenting an unchanging society before its anticipated extinction. Uh, the next is place. So um, the crocodile's popularity amongst Europeans was heightened by place-based historical associations. So the crocodiles were associated by name with several archaeological and geographic sites near their habitat that were connected to Hellenistic and medieval crusader histories in Palestine, including the alleged like Grisha Roman port city, Crocodilopolis, the nearby river, Narl Zot'a, which during the Grisha Roman period was allegedly known as Crocodilon or Crocodile River. And so the crocodile uh, served as a reptilian conduit for rewriting and claiming ownership over Palestine's past, thereby um, de-Arabizing the history of the coastal marshlands. Um, the third point, which is particularly relevant to our conversation today, is scarcity. Um, the scientific value of the last crocodile as rare empirical evidence was inextricable from its market value as a scarce commodity. So alongside taxonomy and habitat, colonial zoologists writing on the last Palestinian crocodile were interspersed with references to money, an inability to afford purchasing a last crocodile, a willingness to pay any price within reason, and a triumphant proclamation that a promise of a reward produced a specimen after a zoologist's unsuccessful hunt. These discursive performances of ownership and invocations of finances demonstrate how the interlocking relationship between speciation and commodification often extended to humans. Capitalist value relations figured as a near taxonomic distinction in these writings between us and them, colonizer and colonized, uh, colonized, excuse me. And of course, this is more about their perception than about like actual historical fact. Uh, so the fourth and final point here is reptilian imaginaries. So colonial zoologist uh, crocodile mania was fueled by this enduring European fascination with crocodiles. Um, crocodiles often symboled like exotic terrain, this beast of hip this hypocritical evil beast. And against the backdrop of these longer histories, crocodiles emerged with renewed force as a key imperialist symbol beginning in the late 18th century. And the crocodile hunt in particular emerged as an iconic imperial trope of European masculine uh, dominance. So this doesn't account for all the particularities that um, Palestinian crocodiles had in the eyes of Europeans, um, but it helps to explain how Europeans had this completely disproportionate fascination with Palestinian crocodiles. And we see this in the Egyptian Expeditionary Force publication, Palestine News. Um, I have a map here and I demonstrate like all the locations where that um, these Brits alleged to have seen crocodiles or wrote the crocodiles existed in the Dead Sea and Ramallah. And we know this is just absolutely not true, right? So they had this fixed fascination in, in conclusion that really like extended beyond the realities of Palestinian geography at the time. So um, I argue that colonial zoologists have century of speculation about the whereabouts of the last Palestinian crocodile and the crocodile's extinction status. Um, ended 
um, in, uh, ended with the Zorals al Kabara Marshlands Drainage Project. So in his 1935 volume, Animal Life in Palestine, the Zionist zoologist Frederick Simon Bodenheimer specifically invoked the drainage as proof that Palestinian crocodiles were finally extinct. Bodenheimer recognized that by destroying the crocodile's former habitat, marsh drainage made crocodile life in Palestine impossible. So uh, Bodenheimer's extinction proclamation offers more than a textual closure to a colonial scientific debate, both because of Bodenheimer's subject position as a Zionist zoologist and the connection that he forms between Palestinian crocodiles extinction status and the drainage project, Bodenheimer's text reflects the continuation and evolution of the colonial zoological project in Palestine, which until this point was primarily executed by European Christians. In turn, it reflects the ongoing nature of the Palestinian crocodile's extinction story. Palestinian crocodile extinction is not just an isolated species death perpetuated by past imperial powers. Its material and cultural afterlifes are not only held in archival texts, taxidermized specimens, or in the historically inaccurate extinction narratives of Israeli cultural institutions, such as the biblical zoo. The story of Palestinian crocodile extinction also continued on the ground through the environmental politics and policies of the Zionist settler colonial project as it gained a stronghold over uh, British mandate Palestine. And in my article, I dive more into like the history of this and I do a deeper analysis of, of Bodenheimer's article. Um, but at, towards the end of my article, I shift gears um, and I, I talk about how the events that Bodenheimer glosses over were monumental for the Hawarna community. Um, in our conversations about Gisarado Zara's interwoven uh, environmental and human histories, local historians and community figures, Sami Al Ali and Mohammed Hamdan, shared their theory cultivated through years of archival research and conversations with community elders that their community's Nakba dates to the 1924 drainage project. The violent and disorienting transition to urban living, coupled with the near total destruction and loss of their land, disrupted ways of life and livelihood that were intertwined with marshlands ecology. So um, Ali and Hamdan's research combats three processes of isolation and separation. Um, and I'm just gonna quickly touch upon two if I have time for that, Alex. Um, so um, first it challenges the community singular and especially in the aftermath of 1948, often stigmatized status. Uh, Jisr al-Zara is the last solely Palestinian city remaining on the Mediterranean coast within Israel's 1948 borders. This is yet another rhetorical configuration of lastness that circulates around the community and the present. And you see this a lot in Israeli writing, this kind of very fetishizing kind of discourse of lastness that emerges. Um, second, Ali and Hamdan's research foregrounds how ecological devastation, specifically habitat destruction and biodiversity loss have detrimentally impacted indigenous Palestinian ways of life, their research and experiences of their community more broadly, lend critical valence and historical specificity to the term uh, environmental Nakba. Um, and by extension, Ali and Hamdan's community-based research opens analytical pathways for recognizing, even mourning, the loss of non-human animal life in Palestine without valuing it over uh, indigenous human life. Um, so rather than fixating on the death of a singular specimen or the identity of a singular hunter, it addresses the intersecting, intersecting circumstances that contribute to an extinction as it unfolds over time. And crucially, this approach foregrounds the experiences of those whose daily lives are most impacted and left most vulnerable in an extinction's wake. 
Thank you. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. Um, we and thank you all of you for um, wonderful presentations, for excellent articles, and for also staying on time so we have plenty of time uh, for Q&A. Um, we already have some uh, beginning to come in via the Q&A function, so I encourage uh, everyone um, who has questions to submit via the Q&A function on Zoom or um, on Facebook. You can uh, submit questions via the comments, I believe. Um, before we get into the, the audience Q&A, uh, I'm going to kind of pose one question myself, take advantage of my position here, and then also, if, if Paul has any questions, um, we can take advantage of, of the power we wield as um, moderators. Um, so the one question, or one of the things that I saw um, connecting these, these articles, despite their being kind of quite different in terms of both the approaches and, and the subject matter, was the, the kind of question of, of temporality and how that plays a role in questions of, of ownership. Um, whether it's the kind of temporariness of a human rights regime, right? The idea that a refugee camp is only a, a temporary setting and that produces a, a particular kind of uh, temporality that shapes ownership, uh, whether it's this temporality of kinship and, and lineage and, and how that specific temporality shapes um, ideas of, of property and inheritance, whether it's the temporality that comes from a shifting political economy, um, as Fadia pointed out, right, and, and the, I, the temporality of cultivation and, and what that, how that changes land use and, and people's relations to it, or the temporality of extinction, right, and that particular way of kind of thinking about, um, you know, the, the the, the kind of end of an era, um, if you will. Um, so that's you know more an observation than a question, but perhaps a kind of uh, an opportunity to ask um, each of you to you know maybe reflect on on how you see kind of time and ownership or temporality and um, property intersecting um, in a particular kind of way. And also if there's you know. Um, each of you had limited time and so you know weren't able to kind of um, draw out some of the really rich and interesting details that, that figure in each of your um, articles. So if there's a particular example um, that you want to kind of um, raise to, to kind of point to some of uh, uh, to, to point to this issue, um, I would also invite you to take this opportunity to do that. Um, so I'll you know give you the opportunity to, to speak a little bit and then, um, if Paul has any questions, and then we already have a few questions in the Q&A, so we'll move um, quickly to those. Does anyone want to start, or should we move to different questions and give you a chance to think about it? Um, I could probably say something about temporality. I, it's kind of a huge topic. Um, and it's a big part of my broader research. I don't want to go too far past the article that I wrote for JQ, but um, I mean, I'm writing about a church that's 2000 years old and the basis of the authority of the, of the hierarchy of the church is that they claim to represent that long uh, historical trajectory that they claim that um, they are able to stay in control because of that um, that history. And so a lot of times the debate about about who should run this institution is is um, takes place in historical and temporal terms. Um, property is an interesting um, element of that because 
um, this, this legal change to the church that I describe in my article is one that took place in the 16th century. Now, that's not normally a period that an anthropologist gets into, um, and certainly not me. Um, so I was very surprised and, and somewhat shocked, actually, to find that this, um, this legal change happened so long ago and is still having an effect today it, it was quite shocking and it really changed my understanding of where like how historical developments occur and I thought that I, I continue to think that um, the, the the understanding of uh, what it means to to be in this place the old city of Jerusalem where all of the property is ancient um, can't really be understood only in the context of what happened after 1948. And that's obvious to, to everybody. But um, but in this particular context, it's something that I'm continually coming across. And I think this issue of the family waqf and the waqf in general, um, it's it's a very difficult thing to, to sort of um, figure out because it, it takes place across you know, different regimes, the Jordanian, the British, the Israeli, the Ottoman, um, and so, yeah, that's something I'm constantly thinking about. I don't really have a, a good concrete example to give you from my ethnography, but um, but yeah, that's definitely a major, a major piece of it. Thanks, Clayton. <clears throat> I can also try and respond. Uh, temporariness is obviously a big theme for, for me studying Palestinian refugee camps and their history. Um, and uh, when we look at the camps in the 50s, there are um, so many dimensions of, you know, of, uh, of temporariness in them. But when we see how Shofat was built, uh, it was also built to last. Uh, so it's, it's a kind of, it, it's a camp built when there's not a, not a direct response to war, but sort of in between two big wars. So it's a very strange uh, example, uh, but it might give, um, uh, you know, tell about how uh, both UNRWA and the international community maybe saw the Palestinian refugee question at the time as sort of just being solved with refugees just living where they were and, and camps just turning permanent maybe. Um, and, and you see that uh, the refugees, they, they challenge the humanitarian management of the camp. Uh, but at the same time, after 67, UNRWA is stepping down from their camp management. They redefine the camps and, and leave the camps more to, to themselves or to the refugees. Uh, so the camp, so uh, at the same time, the camps were built on very, let's say, unclear legal grounds. So this is a kind of a recipe for, for an unknown future. You know, what will happen after 99 years uh, when the agreements sort of maybe will end? Uh, and what, how can refugees uh, prove their claims to camp land, to the camp space uh, after having lived there for, for all these decades? So it's a very insecure form of ownership, uh, and it's um, and it's a. Uh, of course, I didn't mention it clearly in my presentation, but it's also combined with a continued displacement. So it's uh, so after 
uh, UNRWA moved the refugees to Shofat. Many of them tr did trickle, did go back to Moascar, and then they were displaced again or evicted when Israel re sort of rebuilt the, the bigger Jewish quarter after 67 and, and demolished the Moroccan quarter. Um, and then the gradual pressure on Palestinians in, in the entire Eastern Jerusalem and, and of course much wider. Uh, so it's a temporariness combined with a very uh, you know, harsh pressure on, on existence. So, uh, so it's a very vulnerable, uh, the temporariness of the camps uh, may be sort of symbolically important uh, to raise arguments about rights, but it's still a very vulnerable and very insecure space. Thank you, Christine. I will also try to stretch a, an answer. I think this is a really important uh, question. And I've been thinking a lot in the last couple of years about those question of temporality in relation to processes of dispossession, agrarian change um, in Palestine, but elsewhere engaging with uh, Palestinian scholars uh, and indigenous scholars um, and, the, and their work. So thinking about uh, a, a Palestinian farmer uh, or villager in the village of Al-Walaj of Wadi Fukin, while he's cultivating his land, um, is uh, interacting uh, not only with, with the land, the object itself, but with settler laws, Ottoman laws, British laws, at the same time with settler capital, with local markets, global markets, um, national and international development plans that impose certain kinds of agricultural practices and, um, and also with uh, national and uh, transnational uh, solidarity movements. So the, the question of temporality, I mean, here we are uh, faced to multiple temporalities at the same time, and that's very, very interesting. And at the same time, I think when, I mean, for scholars thinking about questions of agrarian change, we are still uh, much linked to a notion of linearity in, um, in, in agrarian change. And that's something that I'm also trying to, to challenge in my own work. Um, for example, uh, I've been, I, I would be critical today of, of the use of the term evolving uh, that appears in my title, because that I, I think that somehow it conveys a, a, a meaning, a sense of linear casualty in events. And um, and so yeah, I'm I'm very interested in in learning and unlearning about how those uh, processes of agrarian change um, unfold and are experiences uh, experienced through uh, continuities, discontinuities, ruptures, and persistence. Um, and yeah, so that's a very interesting question. Thank you, Alex. You can take a stab at it as well. Uh, so I'm, I'm thinking about two things, I guess, in relation to my to my ongoing project, because this article is just kind of one piece of a larger um, thing I'm working on. So one is this notion of lastness, um, and I'm really interested in how it emerges as a trope um, in some Palestinian literatures. I'm thinking of like Edward Said's Under the Last Sky. Um, so there's something really powerful there beyond the kind of colonial co-optation of, um, of, of lastness as like a form of imperialist nostalgia. Um, and then kind of moving to a darker place in terms of like um, kind of colonial management and control. 
I think this this sort of um, this I guess the temporalities of extinction become a way of gaining control through like biosecurity discourse. Um, so one of the last crocodiles um, that I'm looking at, a taxidermy specimen that was previously held in the Schmidt School for Palestinian Girls, was quote unquote transferred to a new Israeli biodiversity institute in Tel Aviv. And part of the justification was that it, you know Israel needs to you know basically safeguard all of these valuable um, natural specimen in light of climate change and keep them in this like safe and secure spot. Um, so that's just kind of like one example of this biosecurity discourse that I think you see playing out in all sorts of um, interesting and disturbing ways. Yeah, really interesting. Uh, thank you. I'm going to move to some questions from the audience now. So we'll start with a question from uh, Yuzan Kopti. Um, for Fadia or anyone on the panel, can you ex uh, explain how the Israeli state sells or leases land or property that it seizes, how and to whom, and if this is how it manages state land in general? Thank you very much for this question. Uh, so I will try to answer um, to the different aspects of the question. Uh, the, the Israeli state, um, so since 1980, it has been using the state land doctrine, as I explained in the presentation, to, to confiscate Palestinian land. But actually, it used many different ways, um, uh, reworking through British, Ottoman, um, Jordanian laws to, to seize um, Palestinian land and, um, and, and to take it uh, as a state property. Now, I don't know the exact mechanism uh, through which uh, this, the Israeli state reallocates the lands to, um, to settlers and to the Israelis. But I think uh, a few years ago, there was an interesting study published by Peace Now that actually uh, focused on the amount of state land um, that has been reallocated to, to Israelis in the West Bank, uh, state land in the West Bank, reallocated to, to Israelis um, over the last decades. And actually the amount of land uh, um, was 99.8%. Uh, that was allocated to Israelis and only the 0.20% to Palestinians. Um, so I think this is quite significant to, to have an idea of um, to whom the lands are reallocated. Um, and um, and also another important point is that uh, there are websites such as who uh, organization who have a website such as um, who profits that actually really uh, spots the light on which are the international and um, Israeli companies complicit in the in building Israeli settlements. So I think this could give you an idea of who is uh, involved in this process um, and how. Thank you. Thanks, Fadia. Actually, I was wondering if any other panelists had, I was curious, um, Clayton, how does it work in terms of the like church property? I know these scandals emerge periodically, right? That um, the church property is being leased or, or rented. Um, and how does that work kind of logistically? Uh, well, it varies quite a bit, but I mean, from the period, because it, it was quite specific, there were, there were some land deals before, um, 1948 that were it's unclear all of the details but the British um, mandate 
government uh, effectively used the debt of the church to um, encourage it to sell property of the World Zionist Organization. Um, initially, the plan was for the church to um, have its debt covered by the Greek government, and the British didn't want that. They didn't want interference from Greece. And so this was the sort of um, solution that they came to, and that was resisted by the patriarchate, although it seems that maybe there was it was more complicated than that. But today, um, I think that a lot of the, at least in the old city, a, a lot of the um, time when when the settlers, which are very much working with, um, you know, aspects of the state, uh, when they're able to seize property today, it's often because of the sort of gray area between ownership um, and um holding of a long-term lease um, because effectively a lot of the time having a very long-term lease is essentially the same thing as owning the property because the owner has very few rights um, and so what often happens like in the case of the St. John's Monastery which is something I talk about um, the it wasn't the, the church that actually sold that property it was the the leaseholder someone who was just holding the lease who ended up selling that um, even without permission and so um, yeah, you have a lot of times this sort of, because the legal um, status of a lot of these properties is, is really undetermined, um, and the, the status of pre-1948 properties is, isn't really um, established at all in Israeli law, there's a lot of areas for the settlers to kind of jump in and take these properties, and the state usually kind of um, allows it. So, so yeah, that's at least in the experiences that I've had, um, that was definitely an issue. Um, we have another question through the, the chat um, from Hassan Hamami. Uh, he, he writes, uh, who owns Palestine? A big picture question deserves a big picture answer. The only way anyone can own land is to inherit it, buy it, or be given it from someone who owns it legally. Neither Britain nor the Ottomans nor the United Nations did not own or had any rights to it, uh, to give it to the Zionist movement or the Jews of Europe. Question, how can we get to the root of how Palestine, Palestinian ownership can be redressed? Um, so I guess this is a kind of big question. You know, what how, what ways are there to, you know, having analyzed some of the issues of ownership to kind of redress some of these uh, uh, kind of questions facing Palestinians around ownership? No one's jumping to take that one first. It's a very difficult one because it's it also uh, the all the enemy you know the the property the um, the property that Israel confiscated from you know the original Palestinian Palestinian houses and and villages and all the lands in 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 today's Israel. Uh, is also part of that picture, and uh, that leaves the question. You know, it's 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 part of a, you know, very uh, established structures and very. Um, but but it's um, so. For example, uh, I think it's uh, Amidav. It's an organization that organizes and sells. Um, you know, the former Palestinian properties in Israel. And it's still uh, land sales uh, of, of, of Palestinian properties are still happening through this organization. Um, 
and we also saw it in in Sheikh Jarrah, uh, where you know the fundamental it was presented by the Israeli state as a pro, you know as a property dispute, um, while while fundamentally it is of course about injustice, historic injustice that has never been redressed and never any compensation, never any access to durable solutions. So it's, it's, it's addressing the fundamental you know, injustice that, that happened in 1948 is the big answer to this. And then there's the ongoing colonization after 48, uh, no, after 67, sorry. So it's, um, uh, so it's a very it's a very difficult question, uh, but it's it's about uh, in terms of the refugee camps, and and I see there was another question for me about the camps. You know, what can the refugees do in order to be prepared for that day when the agreement goes out? So it's kind of related uh, to the question about. Um, uh, I, and I think it's also a complicated question, and I think there's not enough knowledge and awareness about it. So I think refugees and refugee organizations and researchers should should study, should should work on this. And what claims are refugees? What do refugees want to make? Uh, do they want to claim ownership? Uh, how do they want to make what? claims do they want to make? And, and I think also uh, UNRWA uh, needs to prepare, prepare for that day because for the 70 years plus, they have been paying very nominal rent, uh, very symbolic value for high value uh, land, uh, often in the middle of cities and also the hosting countries. So I think um, they, they, you know, as researchers, we could, Take initiatives to to explore and research sort of sort of at least what what options what what kind of thinking uh, refugees uh, have around this issue. That would be a start, but I don't have a clear uh, response. You know, a clear answer to your question. So, thank you. It's a it's a very big question. I think we can only. Uh, begin <laughs> offer beginnings yeah. of answers. I don't know if anyone else wants to to offer thoughts or um, there's another question um, from Yezen for Elizabeth. Um, are there other examples of species extinctions, uh, fauna or flora, that are blamed on Palestinians in Zionist colonial narratives? You're muted, Elizabeth. Thanks, Alex. Okay, um, just a few examples include the um, the Syrian brown bear, uh, the cheetah. Um, I know this because this well, Alex knows this, but this uh, this um, Zionist um, religious figure who's interested in animals and theology, like. Uh, wrote this whole attack on me and he was like well maybe you're right about the crocodile a little bit but here's a list of all the other animals that Palestinians definitely uh, wiped out in the region so um so he includes those um and if you're interested in this sort of um like yeah these sort of like Zionist blame games um 
there's an edited collection called Between Ruin and Restoration. Um, I think it's by UC Press um, that includes um, some articles by Israeli um, zoologists as well. Thank you. Um, any other questions uh, or questions that you have for each other? Or Paul, if you have questions for the panelists. Yeah, I have a question. Um, I, well, maybe I mean, this is sort of like the, there's something on method and something about how you kind of see your work circulating. Um, and so this is especially for those of you that have like been doing the research on, on like land and property. Um, like there's a lot of difficulties doing that. There's the fact that the stuff is really slow and oftentimes like, you know, things around transactions, property changes, whatever that happens, like only a couple of times in somebody's life usually. Um, it's often very sensitive. People don't necessarily want to talk about it, especially to like a strange researcher. And then the archives, like when they exist, um, there's all sorts of omissions and absences. And so I'd be curious to hear more from all of you, if you wish to speak about it, like how you put your material together to build an argument um, and how you dealt with some of these problems or other ones. Um, and then perhaps just a general question, um, like how, aside from the fact that it's fantastic research and is important in terms of the different disciplines, like how do you, how would you want it to circulate like outside of an academic readership? Like, does it have a politics? Do you like think that it, the question of redress is very difficult, but I mean, you know, to the whole question of Palestine, but maybe to the specific issue around environment, degree and change. I don't know where you would take it, but like, how would you want it to be read, you know, outside of academics who are working in Palestine? Thanks, Paul. Does anyone want to start? I can I can take a stab at those really big uh, questions as well. Um, regarding like I guess like the ethics, which is kind of like what I heard in part from your first question about kind of access to um, to resources and speaking with people. Um, I think for me like part of it is like there's this posturing at least in the U.S. Academy of like I know everything and I have my argument all together like from the get-go um, and I found that not trying to posture like that in um, kind of in research spaces or especially when I'm like speaking to people um, is is helpful which is good because I'm not I'm not good at that posturing anyways quite frankly um, but also um, when it comes to like, uh, including, for example, I, I drew upon research from uh, local historians and community figures in Gisrael Zara, and uh, it was important to me to share um, what I wrote, how I represented their argument before publication, um, and made sure that um, they're comfortable with my representation um, of their words. Um, and I think just like a willingness to admit when you when you screw up, obviously, like I'm, you know, I'm not I'm not Palestinian. I have to be really mindful of my of my subject position, uh, and that also comes with the privilege, like you're saying, of being able to access certain archives within Israel. I was able to access those photos from Kibbutz Magan Michael because I am an American, uh, and I was able to kind of just you know kind of stroll into the kibbutz. Um, and I, I'm still kind of trying to figure out you know how I can you know how I can 
um, you know, sh share those resources with Palestinian scholars who, who are unable to access um, those same spaces because of their subject positions. Um, yeah, and I, yeah, I guess that's it. What, what was your, your second question? Or maybe I'll just stop. About how you would like to see your work circulating beyond oh. academia. I'm still figuring that out too, to be honest. I would love for it to though. Um, and I'm looking for more and more kind of uh, popular science venues perhaps that I could try and publish in. Um, so I'd really love to hear everyone else's thoughts as well. Um, I could say something as well about this. I, um, on the methods question, I think this was the article for me, I mean, I, I'm, I only got my PhD recently, but um, in my you know limited experience, um, this this article was much harder for me um, to write because it's I'm not writing from one discipline, and it's a very concrete issue that affects people now, um, and and it also my knowledge is so partial not only i mean knowledge is always partial but on the particular issue of land and property um you're dealing with legal regimes in multiple languages over a huge time span um the politics are very complicated the religious uh, element is extremely dense and and difficult to understand the theological the canon law all that kind of stuff um plays a role and so for me i just really had to feel that like I'm really just kind of an incremental part of a larger uh, collective effort to try and understand what's going on because um, yeah there I couldn't do what I did in this article without previous work from historians kind of laying the ground because I wouldn't understand what I'm seeing um, today if those those researchers hadn't done that stuff and I think that's actually kind of the answer to the second part of Paul's question for me as well which is that Journalists were a huge part of my um, research for this this um, this project because they're the ones who are getting these documents in Hebrew, in Arabic, um, in like a lot of European languages as well. Um, just pulling them out. Some of them were were taken uh, surreptitiously from offices and things and um, posted on the internet. Sometimes they're um, leaked by people inside these institutions to the public through um, newspapers and magazines and things. And so that is a very public uh, dis discussion. And it's a very, it's a really interesting way for uh, someone like me to um, engage with, with a broader uh, sort of, you know, public debate about what's happening in the church and um, and to kind of just add one little piece to it. Uh, I'm still trying to figure out, like Elizabeth said, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out what what I can do uh, in the public arena. But um, but yeah, that's part of it. Thank, yeah, I could also try and say something about methods. Uh, so this was originally a chapter in uh, out of very many in my thesis. Uh, so um, and it was built on UNRWA archives, WACF archives, and interviews. And I was very concerned and looking for Palestinian and refugees' voices in all these archives. But of course, these two archives are institutional archives. So the the refugees' voice. Is, is often hard to find. Um, so that was a, uh, a struggle. Um, and I also 
um, and I also was very much helped by you know uh, colleagues and and in particular the Brown uh, workshop and and the editorial process in sort of crystallizing uh, Palestinian perspectives in this. Um, so that was extremely helpful for me. Um, but I would like to echo um, what the others have said. I'm extremely, uh, I would say, uh, careful uh, in terms of what I don't, knowing all the things I don't know and sort of humble in, in sort of building on what others have done, but at the same time realizing that this is, this is a, also a erasure of history since, you know, it's, also a job for historians to to take to do this job so it's a part of a bigger effort that and I hope that more uh, researchers will also uh, will also take part in this in, in in the the lack of research on 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 certain dimensions of of the camps and Gadget. I will also try to, to answer these two big, those two big questions. So for the first question, um, I based uh, much uh, of the um, materials that I use for the articles on ethnographic fieldwork in uh, in those two villages, Alwadaj and Wadi Fukin. I mean, more broadly, I did ethnographic fieldwork in the region of Bethlehem, but I really focused on those two villages. And, and that was very helpful at the beginning for me to kind of like, talk constantly to people to ask them questions. Um, I was living in the two villages, so I spent um, around four months in each village and that was helpful. But of course, um, and another important thing of living in the village was that some, sometimes I also used the land as an archive itself. Um, so walking around, looking around, um, asking questions to elders about why these trees here, how old it is. And it, it really helped me to understand um, how land use has changed over time. Um, and, and also, for example, uh, that was something interesting that I discovered by going uh, with a biologist uh, to Wadi Fukin, that there are some specific plants that are now growing across uh, along the green line because those lands used to be, to, to be used for grazing animals and because uh, you know, farmers and villagers are no longer allowed to use those lands, then there are specific kinds of plants that grows there and they're clearly, I mean, they are clearly telling us that that land was used and can no longer be used for that specific purpose. And so that was something very interesting for me, but of course, this is a very micro level. And I tried to do research in, in the archives in Jerusalem, in Amman, um, uh, going around different libraries in, in Ramallah, Bethlehem. It's not easy. Um, and so, I did collect some of those materials around, uh, but uh, for me, I mean, that was very interesting to do the process the other way around. So talking to people, getting the information and then go to find answers um, in the archives. And, uh, and of course, um, there are questions that cannot be asked. Um, uh, land sales, um, that's a question that cannot be asked uh, and it cannot be discussed. Um, questions, some questions related to property, you really need to gain um, the trust of people and it takes a long time. 
Um, so yeah, all those questions, I mean, all those um, going back and forth from the, the village to the archive, it's an interesting process, but is very time consuming. And regarding the second question, um, how I'm thinking to circulate, um, as always I have many projects, but then <laughs> reality is different. So I was thinking of, I'm, I'm working with a team of researchers in France uh, on realizing a podcast on Palestinian uh, practices of land use uh, and uh, agroecological practices specifically. Uh, I was also discussing before the pandemic uh, with villagers on realizing a documentary, but of course it, it must be like a participatory process and it takes time funding. So, I, I mean, I think that would be interesting, but it needs more reflection. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you all for sharing your research with us, for sharing a little bit of how the research actually takes place. Um, we'll look forward to the podcast, Fadia. Please uh, share it with us when it's when it's ready. Um, thank you so much to all of you for uh, joining me today, um, to our panelists for their wonderful presentations and um, rich knowledge, um, to those who joined in attendance. I see the names of um, students, teachers, colleagues, friends. Um, thank you all um, for joining us as well. Uh, thank you again to the Institute for Palestine Studies and um, for the Center for Middle East Studies at Brown University. Um, I hope everyone has a wonderful rest of your day um, and we hope to see you again soon. Thank you so much. Thank you.